trying to find additional lives. You didn't know what was going to come down on all of us. On all of us? Us? Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. I got the feeling that something ain't right. Mm-hmm. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me. Jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yep. Yes, I'm stuck in the middle From Pacifica with Radio you. in Los Angeles, this is the Bradcast. That's heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in L.A. On 91.7 FM KYAQ on the central coast of Oregon and 106.7 FM Queso in Cottage Grove, Oregon. Lancaster, Pennsylvania's 93 FM WLRI. Maui's 88.5 FM KAKU, the voice of Maui. Columbus, Ohio's WGRN 94.1 FM. Palinville, New York's 102.9 FM WLPP, and in Minneapolis, St. Paul on AM 950 KTNF, the progressive voice of Minnesota, and coast to coast and around the globe, streaming on the Progressive Voices channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR, Revolution 99, Detour Talk, Radio Monterey, and Radio Sputnik, blanketing planet Earth five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me, from bradblog.com. Thank you for joining us for another thrilling action-packed adventure. We'll see how thrilling it is. It has not been one of those weekends uh, that has been so thrilling, to be frank, um, with, of course, the uh, nine, uh, the 15th anniversary of the 9-11 disaster and everything else. But first, let me uh, say hi to Desi Doyen. Hi. Maybe saying hello to you will cheer me up today. I hope so. Nope, didn't okay. work. Okay, <laughs> sorry. Uh, <laughs> Hurricane Katrina was the costliest natural disaster for insurers, according to uh, CBS News, causing more than $49 billion in damages in 2005. That's followed by the September 11 terror attacks in 2001, which caused $24.5 billion in damages, according to the Insurance Information Institute. And then the devastating floods that hit Louisiana and other parts of the Gulf uh, Gulf Coast just last month, just weeks ago. Remember that, Desi Doyen? Oh, my goodness. Yeah. It feels like it was about three and a half years yeah, ago. Yeah, because nobody's talking about it. It is done. It, it, you know, But as it turns out, those devastating floods uh, will likely cause total economic losses of between 10 and 15 billion dollars according to reinsurer AON Benfield. That would make it one of the costliest natural disasters in U.S. history. Ten to fifteen billion dollars. And remember, 9-11 had uh, twenty five billion dollars in damages. So this is not far behind 9-11 in terms of the cost uh, of, of cleanup and damages and so forth. This was a huge disaster. And yet... Who's talking about it? Nobody. Nobody's covering it. They weren't covering it when it was happening, and they're not covering it now. At least 13 people were killed in those floods in Baton Rouge that left uh, much of the uh, city underwater, destroying 150,000 homes, leaving thousands homeless. 
According to researchers, uh, the odds of similar floods occurring have increased in recent years because of climate change, CBS News was kind enough to point out. Data from the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration shows that more than 26 inches of rain fell. 26 inches of rain fell in Louisiana during one week. 12 inches drenched the state in just one day. The global warming signal is present in these numbers, uh, said uh, the head of this uh, study for NOAA, Karen Vandeweel. Uh, she's also uh, of, of NOAA and Princeton University. She recently told that to the AP. She said, for a precipitation event of this size to occur on the central Gulf Coast, the odds have now increased by at least 40 percent and most likely doubled. So all of that is just one of the reasons we've been following what's been happening up in North Dakota so closely as uh, as members from more than 280 Native American tribes have joined the protests against the construction of the huge new Dakota Access oil pipeline. Uh, that, on Friday, that resulted in the Obama administration via a joint statement from the U.S. Department of Justice, the Department of the Army and the Department of Interior, all calling for a halt to the project, at least on uh, one at one federal waterway. But how did that project, which is, you know, promises to send half a million gallons of uh, I'm sorry, half a million barrels, I believe it is, yeah, of crude oil barrels. from North Dakota down to Illinois every day. How did that get uh, approved in the first place by the federal government? Now that the federal government is saying, uh, stop it, knock it off. We need to check and we need to do another environmental study. We need to talk to the Native Americans. So given all of that and all of the concerns about both the environment and the climate and the Native American sacred lands, which the Dakota Access Pipeline is currently set to cross, how did that get the approval of the federal government in the first place? We'll talk about that shortly with investigative environmental journalist Steve Horn. Uh, meanwhile, a guy named Benny on Twitter points out that Hillary has pneumonia and there's a cure for that. Trump supporters, however, he adds, are racist, deplorable inbreds and there is no cure for that. <laughs> oh, my. Uh, any In any event, uh, the false equivalency, the false balance that we have seen in the mainstream corporate media concerning Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton, uh, the, 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 the false balance that they have applied or at least tried to in reporting on the Clinton and the Trump race, that false balance continues to be disturbing and continues to be a great disservice to the nation. Uh, the result, imagine, imagine if Hillary Clinton, imagine if Hillary Clinton had said something like this, which Donald Trump said over the weekend, uh, as the nation marked the 15th anniversary since the 9-11 attacks. What if Hillary Clinton had something, had said something like this that Donald Trump said? Everyone who helped clear the rubble, and I was there, and I watched, and I helped a little bit, but I want to tell you, those people were amazing. Clearing the rubble, trying to find additional lives. You didn't know what was going to come down on all of us, and they handled it. Donald Trump did not help clear the rubble. Oh, he helped a little bit. He said so. Oh, he, he said so. He was there himself. Yeah, uh, he was worried that uh, who knew what was going to come down on top of on top of us, on top of him. He was there clearing away rubble, saving bodies. Really? Imagine, just imagine 
had Hillary Clinton said anything like that. I, I, I mean, just about, you know, each and everything that he has said in this campaign would have been disqualifying for any other candidate, for any legitimate, for any real candidate. And yet he's able to get away with something like that. And you probably haven't even heard about it, uh, his claim that he helped to clear the rubble. Well, he didn't. And not only that. He took money. He got taxpayer money to the tune of $150,000 from the government uh, for 9-11, which uh, he has completely lied about. This, according to Cameron Joseph over the weekend at uh, New York Daily News, Donald Trump's tale about why he took $150,000 in 9-11 money is as tall as the downtown skyscrapers he says he used in recovery efforts according to government records. Though the billionaire presidential candidate has repeatedly suggested he got that money for helping others out after the attacks, documents obtained by the Daily News show that Donald Trump's account was just a huge lie. Records from the Empire State Development Corp., which administered the recovery program for the state of New York, shows that Trump's company asked for those funds for rent loss, for cleanup, for repair, not to recuperate money lost by helping people. The government program apparently was designed, designed to help local businesses get back on their feet, not to reimburse people for their charity work. If Trump's company had asked for money for that reason, it would have been rejected, according to officials. He's clearly wrong, uh, says uh, David Catalafamo, a senior advisor to then-Governor George Pataki, who helped run the program. Governor George Pataki, a Republican, by the way. Trump is clearly wrong. Uh, he, he said he saw him make the saw Donald Trump make these claims recently, and uh, he's absolutely wrong. He says it was not part of the program to give money away for the ancillary stuff. The way the program worked was to help business cover for uninsured losses. Businesses came forward with their losses and we covered part of them. Yet months ago, Trump patted himself on the back for what Daily New, New York Daily News d describes as his imaginary efforts. He says it was probably, he, Trump said, it was probably a reimbursement, this $150,000 that he received. It was probably a reimbursement for the fact that I allowed people for many months to stay in the building, to use the building, store things in the building, he told Time magazine back in April. He said, I was happy to do it, and to this day I'm still being thanked for the many people I helped. <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm sure he imagines that he is. The value of what I did was far greater than the money talked about, much of which was sent automatically to building owners in the area. But those comments, says the Daily News, don't match the forms that Trump's company submitted to the New York state government requesting the money for his property, the Trump building at 40 Wall Street. Those documents uh, obtained exclusively by the news previously reported that Trump's organization was one of a number of well-heeled companies that received funds from a state program aimed at helping businesses whose bottom lines were hurt by the terror attacks. New York used uh, looser guidelines than the federal government to determine what constitutes a small business. That allowed Donald Trump and others like Morgan Stanley and the Bank of China to claim taxpayer funds. Now, again, imagine had Hillary Clinton made any kind of claim like that. 
you know, say what you want uh, about Hillary Clinton. And, uh, you know, I'm actually uh, not one of those people who is, uh, you know, angry with the media for being too hard on her. It's fine to be aggressive in the reporting. But uh, what Donald Trump has been able to get away with continuously, and I don't know necessarily why, it's something that uh, I, I suspect we'll continue to talk about, why it is he's able to get away with this kind of stuff. Um, so, you know, I, I don't want the media to be easier on Hillary Clinton. I would like the media to focus on Donald Trump and all of these actual crimes that this guy seems to be committing. And yet uh, somehow without, you know, despite all of that, despite one thing after another that would knock Hillary Clinton out of the race or any other normal candidate in a normal election. Exactly. Year. Knock him right out in a New York minute. So disqualifying. Yep. Uh, despite all of that, uh, this just in from NBC News over the weekend, uh, just over eight weeks from Election Day, Democrat Hillary Clinton and Republican Donald Trump are essentially deadlocked in four presidential battleground states. This, according to a new NBC News Wall Street Journal Marist poll in Arizona, which Republicans have carried in every presidential election since 2000. Trump leads Clinton among likely voters by one point. That could be seen as good news for Hillary Clinton, frankly. In Georgia, which the GOP has won since 96, Trump is ahead by three points. These are among likely voters, by the way. In Nevada, which Barack Obama carried in 2008 and 2012, Clinton is up by only one point, only one point in the state of Nevada, 45 to 44 percent. And in New Hampshire, which Obama also won in the last uh, two presidential elections, Clinton leads Trump by just one point. The race, uh, those, that's among likely voters. That's in a head-to-head -head matchup, but uh, the race remains equally close, they report, when the ballot is expanded uh, to three and four candidates, including Libertarian nominee Gary Johnson and the Green Party's Jill Stein. Uh, all four states, by the way, feature Senate contests, and the Republicans lead in all of them. Uh, although Nevada is uh, well within the polls margin of error when it comes to the Senate race. So uh, it's, you know, despite everything we, we know, despite everything we know about Donald Trump, despite uh, Democrats being absolutely giddy about him becoming the nominee, as we warned on this program many months ago, don't become too uh, careful what you wish for. We warned over and over. Uh, despite that, this race... <laughs> Is, is damn near a toss-up uh, nationally and in a bunch of these key swing states. And things do not look like they're getting any better for Hillary Clinton after uh, this particular weekend, after it turns out she was diagnosed with pneumonia on Friday, didn't tell the media, uh, then uh, became uh, reportedly overheated uh, and uh, wobbly, had to leave early at 9-11 event. Uh, she appeared to almost pass out. Uh, as she was getting into her van and leaving. So uh, ABC News uh, also has a similar poll out uh, that shows similar tightening in the race nationally. And they go on to note that these results come in a contest in which the public finds plenty to dislike about both major candidates. For example, a new low. Uh, just 35 percent of Americans now see Clinton as honest and trustworthy. Thirty five percent. That's down from a high of 53 percent in June of 2014. 
Her saving grace on this score is that slightly fewer, 31 percent, see Trump as honest and trustworthy, according to uh, to ABC News. They are at near parity on other criticisms as well. On one hand, 69 percent say Clinton is, quote, too willing to bend the rules. Sixty two percent, which is a new high, disapprove of her handling of questions about her private email server. Really? Sixty two percent? 57% are concerned about conflicts between a Clinton presidency and the work of the Clinton Foundation, the Clinton Charity, which has given billions to help men and women and children suffering around the world. And 52% think that she uh, inappropriately did favors for foundation donors as Secretary of State. Let's start with that first number, 62%. Disapprove of her handling about... uh, of, of her, her private email server. How could that be? The FBI has looked at this, looked at it for a year, looked at it in tremendous detail, found absolutely no crimes, found nothing to recommend a criminal prosecution for, and recently released a report on their investigation saying it was not even a close call as far as uh, whether she should be prosecuted or not. So how is it that this keeps coming up? Hillary Clinton, oh, her email, her private email, as if she did something wrong, as if she did something that uh, wasn't done previously by previous secretaries of state. Well, maybe it's because the media continues to report these these concerns as if they're problems. Uh, without reporting the full breadth of what we know. For example, last week, Congressman Elijah Cummings, he's the ranking member of the House Committee on Oversight and Government Reform. He publicly released an email exchange from uh, from and with former Secretary of State Colin Powell, advising then Secretary of State Hillary Clinton on the use of personal emails just two days after she was sworn in as uh, as Secretary of State back in 2009. Colin Powell wrote in this email, which has now been released, I suspect it didn't make it to the top of the Drudge Report or Breitbart or maybe even Fox News at all. (laughs) Gosh, you think? But, you know, CNN, MSNBC, New York Times, they do not, you know, hammer this stuff home the way they hammer questions shadowy concerns about uh, this or that when it comes to Hillary Clinton. Here's what the email says from Hillary Clinton to uh, I'm sorry, from Colin Powell to Hillary Clinton just after she was sworn in. She says she had asked him about uh, his use of uh, the restricted use of his Blackberry. He said, I didn't have a Blackberry. What I did, what I did do was have a personal computer that was hooked up to a private phone line. So I could communicate with a wide range of friends directly without it going through the State Department servers. I even used it to do business with some foreign leaders and some of the senior folks in the department on their personal email accounts. He said, I did the same thing on the road in hotels. He's bragging about how he was getting around the security concerns that the Department of State had about using a private email account. By the way, he used AOL. Oh, my. Very, very secure. (laughs) He said, however... In this email to Hillary Clinton uh, on looks like uh, January 23rd, 2009. However, he wrote, there is a real danger. If it is public that you have a BlackBerry and the uh, and, and that you are using it, government or not, to to do business, it may become an official record and subject to the law. Be very careful, he wrote. 
uh, I got around that by not saying much and not using systems that captured the data. So he admits that he worked to get around the release uh, of his own emails. Not so he, he worked to resist the FOIA requirements, the Freedom of Correct. Information Act, and also worked around the security that was put in place. Exactly. Now, the security that uh, people are pretending to be concerned about when it came to Hillary Clinton's use of her private server. The, you know, that, that they are pretending to be upset, that they are pretending to say that uh, other secretaries of state, uh, you know, would, would never put this country at risk. Well, Colin Powell put this country at the very same risk. Even if you think it's a risk, Colin Powell did exactly that. And even if you think it's appropriate for, uh, for, for the media, for Republicans, for voters to hold uh, Hillary Clinton accountable for this, fine. But how about holding all of the other secretaries of state who did the same thing similarly accountable? Cummings on the uh, back at the House Committee on Oversight, who released this email exchange, said that it shows that Secretary Powell advised Secretary Clinton with a detailed blueprint on how to skirt security rules and bypass requirements to preserve federal records. Although Secretary Clinton has made clear that she did not rely on this advice. This email exchange, he writes, also illustrates the longstanding problem that no secretary of state ever used an official unclassified email until the current secretary of state, John Kerry. None, nobody had done that until now. He says the Republican obsession with Secretary Clinton has reached a fever pitch and they have been using taxpayer resources to single her out in Congress in the Oversight Committee in a desperate and abusive attempt to hurt her presidential campaign. Congressman Cummings says if Republicans were truly concerned with transparency and strengthening FOIA, the Freedom of Information Act, and preserving federal records, they would be attempting to recover Secretary Powell's email from AOL, but they have taken no steps to do so, despite the fact that uh, this period, including the run-up to the Iraq War, was critical to our nation's history. In fact, they have asked Secretary Powell uh, to uh, turn over those emails from AOL. Secretary Powell has not even responded. Hillary Clinton has turned over tens of thousands of emails. Now, it was, you know, her own mistake that, uh, frankly, that, that she allowed herself to get into this situation. But it was similarly Colin Powell's own mistake, yet... Nobody seems to be pressing him about it. Everyone who is pretending that Hillary Clinton has somehow put our nation's security at risk uh, doesn't seem to say the same thing about Colin Powell. They're just not interested. And most people don't even know that about this Colin Powell email that was released last week amidst all of the other noise that's going on. Americans seem to have no idea, and the media really does not seem to care. So uh, facts, facts don't seem to mean much anymore in the uh, in the corporate media, certainly not to uh, NBC's Matt Lauer after he spent six, uh, six, six different questions on Clinton's not illegal or criminal in any way private email server last week at that commander in chief forum. And then went on to ask Donald Trump, uh, so uh, you think you'll be ready to take the to take the reins at the White House? So I think last week we called it the soft bigotry of Trump expectations. That is certainly the case. Um, uh, but the difference is absolutely shocking in the reporting between Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton. 
And the people who were just so upset that she called what half of uh, uh, Trump supporters a basket of deplorables. Uh, well, they are a basket of deplorables. They are racist. They are Islamic. They are homophobic. And I could go through all of the polls. Maybe we'll do that tomorrow when I have more time. But we could go through all the polls showing that, yes, indeed, more than half of Donald Trump supporters uh, are racist, are Islamophobic, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, uh, anyway, I, you know, it, it's it's. Well, it's mind-boggling to start with, it's and, and the, 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 it's it's shocking and amazing, and I don't know how we get out of this, how we recover from this with a corporate media that continues to put forth this false balance of reporting on what is going to be a pivotal election, not just for the United States, but for, as you started with, climate change. Pivotal for the entire world. For the entire planet. Uh, let's take a quick break. One journalist uh, who is not uh, doing this, who is not putting forward this false balance, one journalist who is trying to actually keep his eye on stuff that really matters to the nation and to the planet, Steve Horn will join us next. I'm Brad Friedman. This is the Bradcast. Don't go away. <laughs> Hey, this is Brad. Do you enjoy your non-corporatized, commercial-free broadcast? Yeah, me too. But we need your help to stay that way. Please consider supporting the investigative blogging, broadcasting, and muckraking that we do here on the Bradcast and the Green News Report and bradblog.com with a donation. It's easy. Stop by bradblog.com donate and drop a few dollars in the tip jar. You can make a one-time contribution or an automatic monthly donation of any amount you like. It's easy. It'll take you about 60 seconds, and you'll help me and Desi stay on the air to continue our troublemaking and muckraking without the corporate influence of anyone. Got it? Thanks. Stop by bradblog.com donate to help us out today. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Over the weekend, I, uh, I spoke with a number of folks about the presidential race and, and the basket of deplorables and everything else. And I got to tell you, just one of the reasons I, I, I find a Donald Trump presidency so indescribably disturbing at this point is because... Uh, frankly, if you talk to climate scientists, as I do, uh, you hear their concerns uh, that they that things are far worse than many of them seem to let on publicly concerning climate change. And the fact that even if a Hillary Clinton is elected, there is still a very serious likelihood that it would be impossible to prevent the planet from reaching a point of no return, after which even if we stopped all burning of fossil fuels immediately, it could very likely be too late to prevent catastrophic warming. And that's with Hillary Clinton winning the White House. So, uh, you know, that's one of the reasons why a Trump presidency is so disturbing, because even a Clinton presidency would be difficult enough when it comes to saving 
the future uh, near and far on planet Earth. And that's also one of the reasons why the ongoing protests by the Standing Rock Sioux tribe up in North Dakota that we've been uh, covering and uh, and the members uh, from more than 280 tribes now from around the country, their protests hoping to stop construction of the Dakota Access Pipeline. This is why this is so important as well. Now, on Friday, as we reported, the Obama administration finally jumped in to stop part of the construction of the pipeline up there, this massive pipeline that will send crude from North Dakota down to southern Illinois. Uh, They jumped in to stop uh, part of that construction, at least temporarily, with the U.S. Departments of Justice, Army and Interior issuing a joint statement announcing the need to re-examine the planned pipeline construction route, uh, specifically underneath Lake Oahe. Uh, near sacred tribal grounds in North Dakota, and they asked as well for a voluntary construction moratorium on private lands 20 miles to both the, uh, to the uh, both the east and west of Lake Oahe. Uh, but where the Department of are of the Army now seeks to slow down or halt construction, it was the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers who gave their approval in the first place for this project where needed. Uh, for the massive oil pipeline to cross federally protected waterways, such as Lake Oahe, as well as the Missouri and Cannonball Rivers, from which the Standing Rock Sioux tribe derived their drinking water. So how did the Dallas-based Energy Transfer Partners Company receive permission from the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers so quickly in the first place, with seemingly little regard to environment uh, and climate concerns, uh, little regard to sacred tribal lands as well, and even the drinking water of the Standing Rock Sioux tribe. Well, it was a little something known as Nationwide Permit 12. That regulatory trick, uh, essentially, was also used last year to get quick approval for the southern leg of the Keystone XL pipeline. The northern part, you'll remember, which would have crossed the U.S.-Canadian border, was eventually rejected by President Obama, uh, who, as president, has the final say on matters concerning international borders. Not so much when it comes to pipelines that do not cross international borders. Writing at the Smog blog late last week, journalist Steve Horn wrote, In the two months leading up to the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers' decision to issue to the Dakota Access Pipeline Project an allotment of nationwide 12 permits, a de facto fast-track federal authorization of the project, an army of oil industry players submitted comments to the Corps to ensure that fast-track authority remains in place going forward. This fast-track permitting process is used to bypass more rigorous environmental and public review for major pipeline infrastructure projects by treating them as smaller projects. So what the hell is Nationwide Permit 12 and how was the Energy Transfer Partners Company able to use it to get quick approval of the Dakota Access Pipeline? Writing at uh, at the Smog blog, uh, Steve Horn, he joins us to explain. He is a Madison, Wisconsin-based freelance investigative journalist, writer at desmogblog.com. His uh, writing has appeared in Vice News, Al Jazeera America, The Nation, Truth Dig, Progressive Magazine, Counterpunch, and many other outlets. Steve Horn, welcome back to the broadcast. 
good to be back on us, hasn't it? Uh, really great to have you here because we talked a little bit about this last week when the uh, uh, this court ruling came down that uh, at least uh, you know denied the preliminary injunction that the Standing Rock Sioux had been looking for to stop this pipeline project, and then as the Obama administration uh, announced at least a partial uh, halt to this project. But one of the things that the court case brought up was this nationwide 12 permit. What exactly is a nationwide 12 permit, and why is it that so many of these fossil fuel companies are uh, really eager to make sure this nationwide 12 permit system continues? So nationwide permit 12 is uh, before the past, like, three or four years was something that was generally and exclusively used for small projects, usually half an acre in size or smaller things like electricity lines, um, access roads, uh, that sort of thing, mm-hmm. small projects that were needed um, on, uh, on lands that the Army Corps of Engineers had oversight of. Mm-hmm. It wasn't really until, the, yeah, as you mentioned, that the Keystone XL debate, um, and in particular the Southern Legacy that, that did not cross international border where uh, the industry saw Nationwide Permit 12 as a convenient way to split up its pipelines into many, many, many pieces. When I say, you know, some, sometimes in the case of Keystone XL South, it was like 2,000 uh, segments where they called single and complete projects. They found this loophole where they could call a huge project, many small projects, um, and get around the much uh, more rigorous uh, National Environmental Policy Act review uh, and the Clean Water Act reviews that are inherent in every other pipeline of their size and uh, uh, the size and magnitude. So um, it, it was also another pipeline where this happened owned by Enbridge called the Flanagan South. So those two really set a precedent because there were federal court cases mm-hmm. Um, that ruled uh, in favor of the industry, and that is why uh, energy transfer partners uh, at least thought that it could get away with this and look like they were going to be able to um, because of this newest court ruling, Mm -hmm. except for the fact that now it's um, under further review by the Obama administration, uh, which was an announcement made immediately after the court ruling came down. It, it, it's it. I called it. I think a regulatory trick. It it kind of is, isn't it? I mean, because there is a, a, an appropriate process that is supposed to happen for something like this, for a pipeline like this. But when they instead break it down, what did you say? Two thousand pieces, essentially. In the case, yes. In the case of, um, I, I, it was not. I'm not sure if it was quite the case for Energy Transfer Partners Dakota mm-hmm. Access, the, the one that's. Uh, highly contested now. Mm-hmm. Um, they may. I think they only use nationwide permit twelve for uh, the, the Missouri River crossing and Lake Oahe. Mm-hmm. But uh, the the way that you know the precedent for this was calling it uh, thousands of single complete projects. And I could be wrong. It may have been for the entire mm-hmm. pipeline. But I know what's up for dispute right now is, of course, the the crossing of the Missouri River and Lake Oahe, which for sure was a nationwide permit twelve. And yes, it, yeah, as you said, it is. Um, you could call it a loophole, you could call it a fast-track trick or maneuver. It's not technically uh, illegal, you know, but it kind of defies the whole spirit of the other process that was in place. So for all intents and purposes, it's sort of like the pipeline industry's equivalent of a tax loophole where you find something that's 
not illegal, but it you know, defies the spirit of, of paying mm-hmm. your taxes and paying your, you know, and so, you know, looking at like what billionaires do, it's sort of the equivalent of that for the pipeline industry. And, and we had talked a little bit about it, I think, with you last year in, in regard to the way the uh, nationwide 12 permits were used with the Keystone XL pipeline. You write now at, at uh, DeSmog Blog that these permits have become a key part of President Barack Obama's climate and energy legacy. Uh, it, it, it's there. There always seem to be these contradictions with uh, uh, President Obama. You know, in one case, uh, it's nice to see that uh, the administration has finally come out and put a bit of a halt to this uh, project. But they were the ones to approve it in the first place. So how is it that uh, how is it that these nationwide 12 permits started being used? Was it the Obama administration who? gave the approval to do it this way or was it something that the, uh, the fossil fuel industry came up with how, how do we explain this and how do we explain the uh, the sort of you know contradictory legacy he has here uh, when it comes to climate and projects like this um, yeah so we don't know for sure what the impetus was for uh, these being used these nationwide permit 12s mm-hmm. we know that the first one was the Keystone XL Southern Lag we know that the second one was Enbridge's Flanagan South we know that it was used again in another uh, pipeline uh, in the Pennsylvania area um, that was challenged uh, in the Delaware Riverkeeper the first case that was actually the first time that a nationwide permit 12 was defeated because of this whole thing that we've been talking about with uh, quote-unquote segmentation of pipelines it was ruled to be illegal to do that in defiance of the national environmental policy act so we know that it's been used several times in the past several years what we don't know is if this was a industry uh initiative where they leaned on the army corps of engineers and, and FERC in the other case to do something like this it's not entirely clear because there's never been a freedom of information act done, um, so we don't know what was going on behind the scenes. What we do know um, from other documents that I wrote about is that industry certainly supports this. Um, there was recently, as you know, right before the whole thing blew up with the Dakota Access Pipeline, over the summer, there were comments uh, opened up by the Army Corps of Engineers to for citizens and other interest groups to weigh in uh, on what they thought about the future, you know, the present and future of Nationwide Permit 12. Yeah, the industry was very heavily involved in submitting comments, whether it was the American Petroleum Institute, whether it was the Domestic Energy Producers Association, whether it was uh, you know, uh, several other interest groups for the industry, all weighed in in favor of Nationwide Permit 12. So it wouldn't exactly be shocking if they were involved behind the scenes in the past several years pushing this on other projects and their attorneys and that sort of thing. It's just not 100, you know, we don't know because it's never been fully investigated. But we definitely know uh, because of these comments that were a little bit difficult to find online but are up online uh, mm-hmm. on the U.S. federal government's website uh, for uh, this particular uh, Nationwide Permit 12 initiative uh, that the industry uh, has been advocating for the continued use going forward of Nationwide Permit 12. In a big way. Uh, you cite uh, not just the American Petroleum Institute, but the Ohio Oil and Gas Association, West Virginia Oil and Natural Gas Association, Louisiana Mid-Continent uh, Oil and Gas Association, Halliburton, ExxonMobil, Shell Oil, Chevron, uh, on and on, BP. They were all, uh, you know, calling for Baker Botts, Texas Industry Project. Uh, they were all calling for the 
this uh, nationwide permit 12 uh, system to continue. Sounds like it works mm-hmm. great for them. But you also note you, you have mentioned Domestic Energy Producers Alliance. They were one of the uh, uh, groups that rang in here. You described them as a lobbying and advocacy consortium spearheaded by Harold Hamm, founder and CEO uh, of uh, hydraulic fracturing giant Continental Resources and an energy aide to Donald Trump uh, and his presidential campaign and potential future U.S. Secretary of Energy. Now, I want to get to Hillary Clinton in a moment, but what are we to make of Harold Hamm, who spoke at the Republican National Convention, as I recall, being floated by the Trump campaign as a possible U.S. Secretary of Energy. Uh, maybe that's better than having him as Secretary of EPA. I don't know. Uh, but wh- what are we to make of, of this, somebody that involved with the industry being cited by a Donald Trump? Hey, he'd be great. I'd love to have him you know, running our environmental policy over at the Department of Energy. Well, it's, um, you know, Harold Hamm has been deeply involved the past several months for the Trump campaign. And actually on Saturday, there'll be a major fundraiser in Oklahoma, uh, in Norman, Oklahoma, quote, uh, right before the OU versus OSU football game, actually, where Harold Hamm is hosting Trump and several other executives will be there. Uh, so he's been a, you know, a, a very important person for hooking up uh, Donald Trump to oil and gas industry money, particularly in the state of Oklahoma and in the fracking industry. Um, There's also a guy who was Mitt Romney's energy advisor in 2012, so he's not exactly uh, the most well-known guy, but he's he's a power player uh, in Republican Party politics for oil and gas. So um, it definitely wouldn't shock me uh, if Harold Hamm became Secretary of Energy, Uh, although there would be lots of questions raised sort of like the old uh, Dick Cheney situation where you have a CEO of a company, um, issues with stock holdings and that sort of thing. But, um, yeah, I mean, Harold Hamm, I feel like he, his name should be far more well-known than it is given the, the power and clout he has, not only in the Trump campaign, but in the GOP at large mm-hmm. and, you know, on issues, not exclusively, but definitely one of the biggest ones last year was oil exports and the campaign that, uh, his his interest group and his company led. Uh, they won a PR award for it uh, by the industry. So they're extremely influential on in opening up the ban on oil exports. And that's just one example of policy that they that's impacted. Now, at the danger of introducing false balance here, uh, Ber- Berkshire Hathaway Energy, which is owned by Warren Buffett's uh, holding company, Buffett is a big fundraiser for Clinton. He's uh-huh. also in favor of these uh, nationwide permit 12s. I- is there ultimately, as you see it, Steve Horn, any uh, difference uh, between that and, uh, you know, d- between Buffett uh, supporting this and Harold, ha- Harold Hamm in support of the- this uh, uh, policy? Should we be equally concerned in, in both cases? Uh, I-, I guess Hillary Clinton hasn't announced that Warren Buffett is going to be, his, you know, her energy secretary. But is there is there any uh, distinction here between those two cases? Um, you know, in the case of the actual policy and support for it, uh, I think that it's equally alarming. I don't, you know, I think, uh, you know, first of all, I don't want to say it's for sure that uh, Harold Hamm would become Secretary of Energy of the United States. It's just, it's just been floated, and it, it ran in a Reuters piece, so mm-hmm. there's a chance. Um, but Warren Buffett is a very wealthy individual. Berkshire Hathaway Energy is a company that has a lot of uh, energy holdings throughout the United States and the utility sector, so it is alarming. Um, I think a good a good pivot and segue to this is looking at what the Obama administration has done. This whole nationwide permit 12 process is 
now actually up for question uh, because the uh, Department of Justice, the Department of Interior, and the Army Corps of Engineers are looking into what they can do to avoid this type of thing happening in the future, as happened under Dakota Access. Um, and it blew up because uh, of the issues raised by uh, tribes, Native mm-hmm. American tribes. But, uh, of course, beyond just that, there are huge environmental and climate change issues involved. So I think that there's a good chance um, coming out of this whole um, snafu that uh, uh, you know the, the whole premise of a nationwide permit 12 being used for the SERV project uh, may uh, be called into question, and it may you know may or may not exist anymore. This, this may have been a tipping point for the use of nationwide permit 12. So, in terms of its supporters, of course, the industries that would benefit from this sort of thing are going to continue to support it. It'll definitely fight against uh, any sort of maneuver by. Uh, the Obama administration or a potential Hillary Clinton administration, but um, you know we'll, we'll see what, what comes out of this whole thing. All, all we got last week was a press release, so it's unclear uh, what 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 substantially is going to take place, but we'll find out soon. Well, I'll t- I'll take your uh, optimistic, uh, your encouraging note there that maybe this uh, uh, the exposure of this issue and the use of this. Uh, uh, what seems to be an inappropriate process to get these permits that, uh, the, you know, that, that maybe we're looking at that and maybe we'll put a stop to that. Uh, so I'll, I'll take that optimistic note from you, uh, Steve Horn. Also, uh, last month uh, in, in August, the Obama White House Council on Environmental Quality, you report, issued a memo calling for projects like the Dakota Access Pipeline to actually go through a climate assessment uh, review as opposed to just an environmental test, which I actually I don't think does it even go under an environmental test when they use nationwide permit 12 or does it avoid that? Sometimes a very short uh, several Uh page uh, environmental assessment. So it's uh, not not equivalent to a whole uh, NEPA review or National Environmental Policy Act where there's public hearings and public comments, and yeah. it's a much longer uh, type of paper that, that gets produced. Okay, so very quickly, what's the difference between an environmental review and a climate assessment, uh, as as the Obama administration has now called for, for projects like this, saying they should go through not just an environmental review, but also a, a, a climate uh, review? Basically, what, what this does is inserts climate change as an issue in the NEPA review. When NEPA was created, it was several decades ago, it was before um, the whole even notion of runaway or catastrophic climate change was even known by scientists. And so still to this day, uh, climate hasn't really been inserted as part of the NEPA review process. It's been more like other environmental impacts, potential water impacts, uh, air impacts, air quality, but not climate change itself. Mm-hmm. So what, what uh, the Center for Environmental Quality put forward, they said that climate should be part of the NEPA review, and it's not binding, but it speaks to that larger mm-hmm. issue that, that we've been discussing, and that is, um, there may, you know, the whole thing with Nationwide Burn 12, climate change definitely is not part of that discussion. So it's looking like um, the whole uh, process and procedure for permitting pipelines may, may or may not, but very likely may change, uh, or just at least discussions around changing that process um, will be unfolding over the next several months of the Obama administration, and then it really depends on who becomes president after this. But I expect, uh, I really do expect the whole uh, blow up over the Dakota Access Pipeline 
we will see things change, or at least discuss there will at least be discussions um, over change of the procedure. And if it's only discussions, then uh, mm-hmm. it's a it's a PR win for um, you know the Obama administration and the uh, Hillary Clinton or whoever becomes president administration. But if it's substantive changes, then it's a real victory for those who are fighting this on the ground. Yeah, and and that is. You know, one of the reasons, as I mentioned at the top of this segment, I I think why uh, it's so important, no matter what you think of Hillary Clinton, you have a chance, at least with Hillary Clinton, to push these. I can't imagine, you know, a a Trump administration uh, putting a a halt, even if it turns out to be temporary on a project like the Dakota Access Pipeline. I I can't imagine them looking at the uh, use or misuse of Nationwide Permit 12 uh, you know, when, when it comes to the approval of these projects. Um, very quickly, uh, I haven't seen any comment from Energy Transfer Partners. It looks like all of the coverage uh, since the uh, announcement by the administration calling for the halt at Lake Oahe and the voluntary halt um, on the construction 20 miles in either direction. I haven't seen any comment from the energy transfer partners concerning that halt. Have you been able to get any information, Steve Horn, uh, through your reporting? Will they, in fact, be stopping construction where uh, the administration has asked them to do so voluntarily? I'm concerned because they have not shown what appears to me to be very good faith throughout this process. So, have you heard anything one way or another about where they are at this point? I have not. Um, all I've heard is uh, from third parties who are observing, who, uh, as you said, some are very suspicious of the company doing anything uh, in, in service to the public interest voluntarily. So um, it remains unclear. I, I really think we'll probably find out by later this week or, or next week because um, I, I believe that the injunction uh, ends on uh, the 15th, which is Friday. So mm-hmm. we'll know a lot more uh, in the next week or two. It, it's still pretty murky. Um, and it's kind of murky what even what the press release means and what the Department of Justice mm-hmm. and the Army Corps of Engineers and all of them will actually be doing. So, um, But I do believe we'll be finding out more in the next couple of weeks. Uh, we will indeed, and uh, we'll continue to cover this story, and uh, you should continue to follow Steve Horn's coverage over at desmogblog.com because I'll tell you what, with all of the <laughs> the noise going on in this presidential campaign right now, uh, some issues, I think, like this, just, uh, pardon the phrase, trump everything else, <laughs> and uh, I really appreciate uh, your coverage on this, Steve. Uh, I suspect we'll be uh, keeping in touch with you and talking more in the future about this. Check out uh, Steve Horn's uh, work on this at desmogblog.com. Follow him on the Twitters at Steve A. Horn. And his uh, article on this out late last week at Desmogblog is Weeks Before Dakota Access Pipeline Protests Intensified, Big Oil Pushed for Expedited Permitting. Hey, great to talk to you, Steve. Much appreciated. Hope to do it again soon. Sounds good. Thanks again for having me. You bet. My pleasure. All right, a quick break, and we're back with more Bradcast and maybe some listener mail right after this. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't go away. (laughs) 
Hi, this is Desi Doyen from the Green News Report and the Bradcast, both brought to you without corporate or political influence. Why? Because we rely on you to help keep us completely independent. Please drop by bradblog.com donate today and help us stay on your public airwaves. That's bradblog.com donate. You'll thank yourself later. I'll thank you now. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. A little bit of a listener email. Actually, this is a comment that was left at uh, bradblog.com on one of our programs last week from Rebecca, who says, Hello, Brad. I love your program, and I learn a lot from listening to you and Desi. Oh, yay. Well, thank you very much, Rebecca. (laughs) Have a nice day. That was... Goodbye. See you later. No, there's more. Oh, uh, there's she says, more. she goes on to say, however, on tonight's cast, when you said that the disinterest and disengagement of American citizens was the fault of politicians for not giving them something to vote for, I felt strongly enough that you were wrong that I had to write. If She says, if each and every person voted at every election, the politicians would be more responsive to our needs and voices. Case in point, If all of the people over the age of 23 who voted for the first time in the recent primary for Bernie had been in the habit of voting in each and every election for which they were eligible to vote, few, if any, would have been blindsided by registration shenanigans that prevented them from making their voices heard. Also, she writes, if each person voted every time, districts like Arizona would not be able to justify closing polling places. All right. A couple of points uh, in response, Rebecca, and I I appreciate the the thoughts and the comments here, but I I think there's some circular reasoning going on, to be frank. If if everyone voted every time, the politicians would be more responsive to them, seems to be her her main argument there. Uh, But my argument was that uh, people don't vote every time because politicians often don't give them anything to vote for. Uh, you know, know, perhaps it's a chicken and an egg argument here, but I believe that it's the responsibility of the people who want to earn our vote uh, to actually earn it rather than, you know, giving it away in free. We're not going to give away our vote for free in hopes that maybe they will, uh, the politician will thank us later on down the road by doing something that uh, we might have wanted. Uh, you know, that's not the way that it works. You don't go to a, a a grocery store and turn over your money and then hope that they give you the groceries that you want. Um, and there are a few other points here that I, I think are, are worth responding to as well in her comments. She said that if all the people over the age of 23 who voted for the first time in the recent primary for Bernie had been in the habit of voting each and every time, uh, few would have been blindsided by registration shenanigans that prevented them from uh, making their voices heard. Well, the presumption here is that Bernie voters had their voices heard less than Clinton voters did. That's something that I, based on my investigation throughout the primary season, I did not find to be true. I don't believe in any event, based on the evidence, that it is necessarily the case. Uh, You know, where we saw voters purged from the rolls. I haven't seen convincing evidence that it was, you know, that Bernie Sanders supporters were somehow targeted more so than Hillary Clinton uh, voters. Uh, But in any event, uh, presuming that it is the case, presuming that somehow they were targeting Bernie Sanders voters and that uh, younger voters were somehow blindsided with registration shenanigans, I'm not sure 
how having voted previously would have made uh, any difference here. Also, if they were shenanigans that were used against these voters, why do we hold the victims of those shenanigans responsible instead of the people who carried out those shenanigans? So if there was something uh, to support, the, even if there were, Something that supported this uh, this argument she's making that that voting somehow previously would have made one less likely to have had their registration lost by an official or or hacked uh, by somebody or not put into the system or whatever. The argument still, as I see it, uh, smacks of victim blaming a little bit. Well, I think she's also saying maybe that a number it would be a numbers game. If enough people came out to vote, then it would alternately reduce the margin of that happening uh, you know but I, I think that might be where that, that goes. Uh, if there were shenanigans uh that were used to keep certain voters from voting i'm concerned about those shenanigans not about the voters who had their uh, vote taken away if that was the case and as i say i'm i'm not actually persuaded that it was in any event uh she also says also if each person voted every time districts like arizona would not be able to justify closing polling places well that's also um not really true they'd be able to justify it anyway it wasn't because of lack of voters that this was done in arizona specifically in phoenix in maricopa county uh that was done at least according to the Republican county recorder of Maricopa County, uh, who, who did that, who changed the system from 200 polling precincts to down to 60 in the uh, recent primaries, because she was changing the system from a precinct based system, voting system to a voting center based system. In other words, under precinct based voting, you have to vote at your own precinct. That's the only place you can vote, essentially. With voting centers, you can vote at any precinct across the across the county, at any voting center, I should say, across the county. And that, by the way, is exactly what Democrats are trying to do right here in, in California, by the way. So I, I'm not sure how each person voting every time would have made a difference uh, in, in that case. Also, I would blame the U.S. Supreme Court first because they gutted the Voting Rights Act. Had that not happened, uh, the, the cut in Phoenix polling places would have needed to be approved by the federal government, which would likely have blocked the change, at least the specific way in which it was done, because it uh, appears to have disproportionately affected Hispanic voters in Phoenix. That's a violation of the Voting Rights Act. Uh, and nonetheless, uh, unless voting is made mandatory by law, which I would oppose unless there was a none of the above option in each race. And if none of the above option won, then we'd run a new election. Uh, short of that, it, it's, it's up to politicians, I believe, to win the votes of voters. And the fact that there was a huge increase in young voters, thanks to Bernie Sanders, that kind of underscores that point. He gave them something to vote for. So why blame the failure of other politicians uh, to do the same? At least that's my thought. Uh, thanks to Rebecca for that note and those comments. You can drop, uh, my, drop me the same if you like. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. You can also find us, of course, at bradblog.com. Leave comments there or on the Facebooks and the Twitters at the Brad Blog. My thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen. To my guest today, Steve Horn of desmogblog.com, and to you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's show or any other, download it at bradblog.com. Until we meet again, I'm Brad Friedman. 
Good luck, world.